0: This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, a podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. You can subscribe and download episodes wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can follow us on our social media pages. And while you're at it, I would love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack, and I have with me today Rachel Allen. Hi, guys. So we are going to continue our discussion around arousal tablet today. And we wanted to start out with this excerpt from the book Mirror of Intimacy by Dr. Alex Kedahakis. And there's another author I don't remember.
1: Rob Bliss? Is it Rob Bliss? I don't remember. I, don't, I think it's Rob Bliss, but I could be wrong on that. So, but Alex Kedahakis. Anyway, so basically
0: this book is like a daily reader I usually recommend it to clients when we're in the process of reconstructing healthy sexuality. I'll ask them to read this. Um, It comes in a book form. You can also sign up for it um, via daily emails. And basically what comes in the email is exactly that page in the book. Yeah, you just get it once at
1: a time. Also, the hardcover is gorgeous. I haven't seen the hardcover. It's so pretty. It's got like the gold leaf okay yeah it's it's just a really pretty pretty book and Rachel has a thing for really pretty books so so she basically starts
0: with a quote that's by whoever right just a quote talking about something and then that's kind of setting the topic for that day that she writes about or they write about so this is taken from september 10th if you want a reference for them and the title is brain power so she uses this quote by marvin dinette Quote, the hypothalamus is one of the most important parts of the brain, involved in many kinds of motivation. Among other functions, the hypothalamus controls the four F's, fighting, fleeing, feeding, and mating. And then she writes about the hypothalamus, and she says, The hypothalamus is one of the major connectors between the brain and the body, motivating us to all kinds of actions, including sex. For this reason, we often refer to the brain as the biggest sex organ in the body. When we see an image or person that excites our mental sexual template, signals go through the hypothalamus down to the genitals. Well after we've taken in the data, seconds, even minutes pass before the genitals are aroused. Exercising discretion about which and how many images we take in and what sexual situations we enter means we're using our brain power rather than being run by our genital power. With good brain power, our impulse control, you can enjoy beauty and sensuality all day long without overtaxing or abusing your brain. So we kind of wanted to start there, just kind of talking about, again, when we're talking about the arousal template, I mean, when I was training as a CSAT, the concept of arousal template was new to me. I hadn't really heard that before as a therapist. And so I don't think a lot of clients have looked at, like, what went into the shaping and creating of their arousal template. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so as we're doing that work with them, we're trying to break that down and look at that. And it's a process I usually say with clients. I mean, if it resonates with you, if it makes sense to you, then that makes sense to you. And that may be part of your arousal template, right? There's not a clear cut like... This and this equal this or this experience in childhood plus this personality type lead to this arousal. Like, it doesn't, it's not a concrete kind of thing.
1: Yeah. The arousal t- template is less like a mathematical equation and more like uh, throwing paint at a canvas and making something. Right. Like, we know where the paint came from. We kind of have some ideas about, like, techniques and strokes. But, like, yeah, it lands individually, right? Like, it's almost impossible to create. And it is impossible to recreate an arousal template voice. Right. Like there may be similarities and things like that, but the reality is like you are unique and so is your arousal template. Even if you have things that are similar, right? Mm-hmm. Like it will show up differently and come from different places. Right. As CSATs, we try not to be negative about
0: the arousal template. It, we're working for understanding and awareness. Now, I will usually tell some clients, if there's some high trauma that happened that is showing up in the arousal template and you haven't really addressed that um, childhood trauma, you haven't really addressed those experiences, the likelihood for you to engage in the sexual behavior as an adult and have it be messy or actually result in emotional pain is high. Yeah. Because, you know, trauma has a way of repeating itself unless we've addressed it and worked on it. So, you know, some of the fantasy is... Neither good or bad, functional, dysfunctional. But if it's coming from this place of unresolved trauma, it can make it pretty messy and just recreate the pain of
1: the trauma as well, right. I mean, as with all things that are stemming out of trauma, right? We're usually not within our window of tolerance when we're participating. That's the other thing is like if you are participating in things from your arousal template fantasies, out of a trauma experience you are probably not in your window of tolerance when you're experiencing them right right? and that can create more more problems it can Mm -hmm. create you're like you're disassociating or you're really really hyper aroused and you're basically in reinforcing those neural pathways that like even this isn't safe Mm -hmm. now that being said right like you and i going back to like the arousal template is a kind of positive thing like i do think this is one of those things that when you work through things in therapy uh trauma related you know that are tied to your arousal template and your sexual fantasies that you get some wiggle room there right because you have consent and how you use it moving forward mm-hmm. where you didn't always have consent in it getting put in your arousal template. You do have some consent on how it shows up and how you decide to engage that and what you kind of decide to do with that. And that can be a very healing place. Mm-hmm. And again, this is if you're working through it with a therapist that kind of understands this. And I was thinking about when you said, like, I had never heard of arousal template. I think that that's a Pat Corn's pap- mind baby. Probably, this is one of those things that, like, because he he's very specific, like sex addiction treatment. A lot of people don't read his stuff unless you are doing sex addiction <laughs> treatment. But the arousal template is one of those like things, like just brilliant things. That's like, oh yeah, this actually makes sense and has a lot of like research behind it. Uh-huh. But I think he actually coined that term, and it's a fascinating
0: thing to look at. I felt like because, you know, going through the CSAT training, it takes a little over a year, I would say, to complete the CSAT training. And, you know, he does require now it's changed since I went through it years ago and it has different faculty members and stuff like that. So I don't know how it is today, but back then they had us working a lot of the key exercises that we're going to be working with clients. We had to work them personally ourselves and the arousal template was one of them. And, you know, he he starts it out non-sexual, like experiences, behaviors, all of this type of stuff, and then kind of takes it into like, you know, Dr. Carnes loves to do, we start here, then we add this, then we add this, and then here's the chain of events, right? And you're like, I remember having this reaction, like, I felt like the curtain was pulled back and I saw The Wizard of Oz. I was like, oh my right so it, it can be really powerful when we're working that exercise yeah
1: i love i do love the arousal template with clients and i think that this is one of those things i think last time we said that like fantasies often come from our wounds but that's not always true it's not always about what right wounds but it is usually about like those pillar experiences mm-hmm. right like so or impactful
0: is the other way to think of pillar experiences, though, experiences, whether they're positive or
1: negative, that had a significant impact on us during our childhood. Right. And they're usually connected to our senses. And I think that's, a, that's something that's really important to like recognize is whether if it's traumatic, we could be outside for our window of tolerance and dissociating and it kind of like imprints
0: mm-hmm.
1: on our brain, but. Also, like those moments that we feel the safest when we feel fully connected to our body, when, mm-hmm. it, like, you know, like it becomes like a core memory that also gets attached to our arousal template and mm-hmm. becomes part of that soup or part of that canvas. Right. And I think it's good to recognize that they're not always wounds but they usually are impactful experiences and then it gets kind of like filled with like individual like little stuff that like Mm -hmm. attaches to those impactful experiences yeah
0: and i would say you know when i'm working with clients sometimes these certain things on the arousal template or some of their fantasies can be distressing to them Mm -hmm. fantasies or behaviors that they've engaged in are distressing to them and Sometimes we have to work to become more accepting of the behaviors because actually what's going on is like they're acting outside of their family values or the values that they were brought up in, which is causing the distress. But the the behavior or the fantasy itself is not necessarily distressing right. as a given. And so, you know, we're working through that with others i would say it is very distressing to them and probably not really functional i stay away from using terms like it's good or bad or moral or immoral and just look at like functional versus dysfunctional and even they have a sense that like there's a lot of pain involved in this like i'm still doing the behavior or i still have the fantasy that i am wrapped up in but it's distressing and painful even doing it Mm -hmm. While I'm seeking comfort.
1: Yeah. And I think that that's rightly really the safe sex rules or healthy sex rules mm-hmm. are safe, sane, and consensual. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of playroom in that that often our clients don't see. Right. right. Because there's so much shame in sex as a whole. that those little nuanced things start to hold shame that aren't necessarily really... Um, dysfunctional or unhealthy or inappropriate and delineating that and kind of pulling and parceling that out is kind of part of the really important work we do is right okay yeah we can understand that this actually creates a lot of shame for you and it's it's not good good is not the word but it's not beneficial to you Mm -hmm. or beneficial to others but there are these really other safe cool places that you can play in that might help with that.
0: Mm-hmm. So we're also not talking about orientation. We are talking about arousal template. I usually think of like orientation is something we're born with. And that's kind of the foundation level on which then we're building an arousal template. It, it is the canvas, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. So we're not talking. So we're the way that we're talking, arousal template can be fluid. Mm-hmm. You know what's distressing or maybe done in dysfunctional ways. We can have awareness and understanding about where it came from and then change it or adapt it so that it's not dysfunctional. It's not, you know, causing harm or pain to clients, to
1: individuals. So right. And that is not true for orientation issue right or orientation. I don't even want to call them issues, but if you're struggling with figuring out orientation or things like that, right? Really, mm-hmm. Like Orientation is a completely different piece of that. We know that it doesn't adapt. We know that, like, people experience a lot of pain and hardship when they try to. Mm
0: -hmm. And so that... And with some of our clients, I mean, sometimes when I'm talking with CSATs, I mean, it's an international organization. Right. You can talk with a lot of different people. What I know best is Utah, because that's where I've worked. It's, you know, where I live. And so... Sometimes I don't. So sometimes I will talk to people and be like, is this a Utah issue? Is this a, like, are, are other people seeing it? And usually, you know, there's other therapists who work in conservative cultures, Christian, very Christian dominated cultures. And so we can have some common ground. And then I feel like there's a slice of Utah that's unique. And so I would say, you know, looking at, Issues in Utah, we often have to, if orientation is at the foundation and they are running from that, mm-hmm. that's an issue. Like, it, once we're working around the template, we're still going to get to here's orientation. And this is, we have to work with them on acceptance and kind of changing the beliefs that they were brought up in and maybe have adopted as their own that kept them from recognizing at at this core level there's an orientation that wasn't accepted by their family, by their religious cultures. And so, you know, for us, we're working arousal template, but we still may get down to and uncover like, oh, here is what's at the core. Now, usually that's been, we've seen evidence of it Mm -hmm. in their fantasies and in their addictive acting out behaviors. I mean, sometimes when we actually get to The core foundation orientation were like questioning addiction. Yeah. And that is pretty common. I I will also, this is Rachel. Let me just say, too, questioning like maybe this is an addiction, maybe this is running for orientation.
1: Yes. This is one of Rachel's like pet peeves. So we're just going to side tangent on this for just a second because it's a pet peeve of mine, right? Like one of the things that often gets confused when we're talking about arousal template is this idea of like same sex attraction. Mm-hmm. Versus like sexual orientation being gay or bi or pan, mm-hmm. and right? And so we will often, at least in our community, like we will hear some of these. Like, I struggle with same sex attraction fantasy. Mm-hmm. That, first of all, say the, the terminology, same sex attracted, comes out of conversion, the conversion therapy movement and the reparative therapy movement. Like, I just won't use it. Mm-hmm. Because it's not healthy, it's not effective, but also like it comes with inherent shame because right. the people who are using it are usually using it in a way that is damning or shaming or condemning in some
0: mm-hmm. way. I think the word attraction seems to have with it this idea of choice. Right. And they're not choosing the same sex attraction and yet they keep choosing the same sex attraction. Right. And right and they're kind of stuck in this loop because we're not actually dropping down and dealing with
1: orientation right and so language is really important for me around this and that specific phrase like i will not use with clients and even when we're going through a novel template and there doesn't seem to be a non-heteronormative orientation if it comes up that is going to be a flag for me Mm -hmm. if they say it or if it comes up of like, I need to pay attention to what this thread is. Right. And that is mostly because I think, like, w- we know that orientation is on a spectrum, right? Like, there's all these beautiful, like nuanced things that happen in orientation. And if we just are flipping about it or don't pay attention to it, we will miss things. Mm-hmm. And especially when there's been a lot of shame and a lot of, damnation around orientation in our culture in our community mm-hmm. right like i think that people will make huge mental gymnastics to stay within their community mm-hmm. and to be okay within their community and i don't know that it's healthy to break parts of ourselves off or deny parts of ourselves to do that mm-hmm. I mean, that's
0: coming from some of the emotions, you know, fueling that would be fear, mm-hmm. would be shame, mm-hmm. neither of which are good emotions to kind of fuel daily living and yeah. choices we make as a person, right? It's also going to keep us from really unfolding and discovering that authentic self and the beautiful parts that each person has within them. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the work that we're doing, we're, we're starting out with maybe some dysfunction, usually we're starting out with dysfunction and building awareness and understanding, but we're moving towards health and wellness. And really that allows the person to expand who they are and to embrace who they are. And it's amazing. The things that happen when embracing and understanding who you are, are present. Yes. <laughs> So we got an email. Let me just read it. I won't use the name because I don't know if they were okay with that. It says, Hi, Jackie. I'm a big fan of your podcast. They've really been helping me on my recovery from an abusive marriage and childhood. Knowledge and understanding is power, and many of your episodes help me understand myself better and through understanding take the steps forward to heal. So thank you. I just listened to your Arousal Template episode. And you mentioned in the show that fantasies are usually a band-aid to cover up a wound. I recently got involved with a guy who I share a common threesome fantasy with. As we got to know each other more, it turns out we both have uncanny, similar childhood trauma. Without knowing the specifics of my situation, would you be able to share what the most common types of wounds a threesome fantasy is usually trying to cover up? I'm also happy to share a bit more if that would be helpful. I would be so interested to know this information and it would help give some insight into the attraction I feel for this person, as well as my own personal growth and healing process. Thanks for everything you do.
1: Yeah. So, one, I, I do want to put out there that a threesome fantasy or like a multiple partner fantasy is really common, mm-hmm. right? Like, that is really normal, really common, really there and present for mm-hmm. a lot of people. That Price. is, you're normal, I guess.
0: And with our experience, we often will say, on paper, very normal, understandable. Right. In practice, it usually we find there's a lot of landmines contained within that fantasy that we they weren't they weren't aware of, right? And
1: they start to set off the landmines, right? So, threesome fantasies, one, they can come from healthy places too, and and I want to like re-emphasize that but mm-hmm. like when are there's nothing inherently functional or dysfunctional
0: around that fantasy right i mean the the person who wrote in though was saying recovering from an abusive childhood and abusive marriage so mm-hmm. we know that there's some patterns there there's some kind of replicated and so
1: let's just guess right they're identifying that this is coming from right. we are not diagnosing. we are not doing therapy mm-hmm. we're just going to make some like ballpark things based on our experiences. One of the things that often comes up when I'm talking to people about their threesome fantasies is this idea of like, I was too much or I was not enough and adding another person, either like there's enough people to share the load or like people desire me. Like I am enough for two people, right? Mm -hmm. I'm or I'm enough for multiple
0: partners. Yeah. I think if in your childhood, there was scarcity around emotional attunement, around being able to be praised to have success, that can manifest that I don't feel enough. And so having two people at the same time can replicate a feeling of abundance, right? That would have happened had parents been able to attune or really be present with kids and be present with all of the experiences kids are going to have, both successes and like challenges, right? So... That can be a powerful fantasy coming from that dynamic. And and again, if if you did have that, if you had attunement and all that, I mean, this person did not. But if you did, you still might land with a fantasy of threesome. But it wouldn't be rooted in this
1: childhood trauma. Right. And I mean, the other, like, I'm too much, right? Like, I'm always in the way. I never do anything right. I'm constantly, like, I am the highlight for the for scapegoat. Or the scapegoat, right? Like, I catch all of the energy mm-hmm. of you're too much, you're too big, you're too loud, you're too noisy, you're too whatever. Right. right. We will often develop that sense of, like, one person can't hold me or contain me or, like, I will break one person. Mm-hmm. And so having two or more people there creates this space of, like, I will never be too much because there's enough people to show up. Mm -hmm. and hold that space you know the idea of like being able to desire right like if we were children who didn't get to ask what we wanted or needed Mm -hmm. and like you know like we were just required to exist and you know not ask for anything or not expand that like the idea like I can desire more yeah or you get what you get
0: and you don't throw a fit oh god I hate that
1: I do too. Like,
0: again, that's not necessarily developing a healthy relationship with wants and needs.
1: Right. And I keep, because we're going through facing codependency in our office right now, Mm -hmm. facing codependence. Yeah. Facing codependence um, by Pia Melody. I keep coming back to her idea of a precious child. And if parents are, Recognizing that children are precious and they're nurturing that and like creating that, like some of those wants and needs and feeling desired and feeling like your ability to desire um, are not impeded. Like these wounds would not necessarily show up, but like that doesn't always show up in dysfunctional family systems or abusive family systems or neglectful family systems. So we are creating space for. For that right to be desired to be able to desire i think there's a level of like multiple partner threesome fantasies that also has to do with like accepting multiple parts of ourselves right like often both genders not always but you know both sexes or genders or some combination of that are represented right mm-hmm. it's in, in terms of fantasy, it's not usually one thing it can be. And that's another thing. But like, usually we're looking at parts of ourselves that are showing up masculine and feminine, right? Like I get to own this part of myself. I get to let someone else take control. There's a lot of like interplay that can happen there that we are the fragments of our own sexuality are able to be parceled out to other people so that we don't have to hold the space for them, For for all of those pieces that we may question or maybe hard or may show up as shame.
0: Yeah, I, I think, you know, I mean we can talk about like different types of fantasies. One of the books that's out there is called Arousal by Michael Bader. It's a good book. I mean he's not going to cover it's not like a dictionary where you look up this fantasy and he gives you an idea, right? But I feel like with that book, he, he can show you how the pattern fits. Yeah. From these experiences when we're young to arousal template when we're older, right? He doesn't use arousal template, but the fantasies or what what is arousing for us. Mm-hmm. And like I said, he doesn't cover all of them and it's not like a mathematical equation. But I think if you were, were looking for another resource, I think that's a pretty good resource that then can help you try to make sense of that yourself as well. Um, I think it's also helpful, like we've said, to work with a professional who is comfortable in this area working with you around that so that it's coming from a healthy place and not stepping on landmines and blowing up your life that you're not intending to. Right. You know, but there's, there's different fantasies, like I said, that can be distressing. I mean, I think he covers this in that book. He talks about the rape fantasy that people have around particular media. I think that shows up for females around being raped. And at the core of that, there's this, uh, belief structure that sex is inherently bad. And so a rape fantasy serves the purpose of like,
1: it's not my fault. Yeah i mean oh right oh are we getting into the purity culture yes (laughs) now yes you know right fantasy is fascinating to me on on multiple levels like i I do think that there's this level of like it's my desire is inherently wrong and so like if it's taken from me or whatever like then it's not my fault Mm -hmm. i also this is a rachel idea so like i don't have anything backing this this is just rachel uh I also am convinced that because historically, I mean, like marital rape wasn't illegal in the entirety of the United States until like after I was born, right? Like I think it was like 1987 or that the last law was put into place. I think it was in the 90s. I think
0: it was like, because I was married in 1993. I think it was around then. I mean, I was in social work, right? Going to school. So it's not like I needed to be aware because I was getting married right? Um, in social work. And I remember being like,
1: Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. So, like, in the last 40-ish years, right. we just started to acknowledge that marital rape could be a thing mm. and needed to be, like, prosecuted or has a lot of charges that could be brought. So I have this belief that some of these things that show up on our arousal templates are things that help keep us safe mm-hmm. and for women we're talking about millennia mm-hmm. of rape just being accepted like it's just something that's going to happen as a woman if you are female right and we've talked a lot about uh all of the things that women do to keep themselves safe from getting raped we do in our society we talk very little about how to not rape people and what that looks like that's changing now but really that's changing in the last like 12 years 13 years so i kind of believe that rape fantasy is also part of like this is what shows up as acceptable sex and i mean it does in media it does in movies in magazines i mean like it's there Mm -hmm. um And I think that that sometimes primes our arousal template to create that kind of fantasy. The wanting, the needing, the not wanting to be wanted, or the not wanting to be needed, the idea that like... Or it can be a way of
0: couching the fantasy of like sex with a stranger. Yes. Like somebody I've never met before, that can be a fantasy. Right. And again, depending on the value system in which you were raised, or maybe the belief system in which you were raised that's never okay yeah but again you know rape might be with a str the fantasy may be with a stranger Mm -hmm. and so we're hitting on this fantasy through this fantasy
1: Mm -hmm. i mean we know that rape itself has a lot more to do with power and control than it does Mm -hmm. about sex and i also believe that rape fantasies have a lot to do with power and control right and I think that there is something freeing about like I did everything right and it happened anyway. Right. Like I really had no control. Mm-hmm. Right. Like it didn't matter to what it was while fantasies have a power control, mm-hmm.
0: which didn't go well in childhood. These are like some negative fantasies, or not negative fantasies, negative experiences that lead to the fantasies. So power and control, wants and needs are huge. Like if wants and needs were you couldn't have them or they were wrong or they were a burden they're going to show up in some fantasy you know so again we can say there are some pretty broad categories under which things go wrong in childhood and they're showing up in fantasy yeah
1: i mean also culturally right like we have a lot of cultural narratives and myths around like men just needing sex mm-hmm. No, rape fantasies do happen in non-women non-female identifying mm-hmm. persons but it is most common in biological women. I don't know mm-hmm. how I guess we know. and i I think that there's a lot in our cultural narrative around men needing sex, men taking what they want, wifely duties, right? Like mm-hmm. an, around women not desiring, like it's inappropriate for women to desire. And all of the, like, slut-shaming and name-calling and things that we do around women who have any kind of sexual ownership of mm-hmm. themselves and so it becomes a very interesting niche fantasy that a lot of systemic problems can be tied to mm-hmm. and it, it is one of those fantasies that i think we have to start talking about like the bigger social narratives. Which bring us to purity culture. And purpose. <laughs> um, so I want to define purity culture because I think that this is one like you and I use the term a lot. It's used in a lot of our literature a lot and kind of those things, but a lot of people who are not doing what we do don't know what the definition of purity culture is definitively. Mm-hmm. So purity culture is the belief that sex is saved for marriage for your partner specifically it is usually taught to girls about saving themselves for marriage for their husbands and staying sexually pure and right like some of that like we saw that in the duggars where it was like we won't even kiss before marriage
0: mm-hmm.
1: or um, girls couldn't wear tampons but that still doesn't to me right but it's this very like save the hymen at all costs kind of thing it also comes from the idea that like the father owns the sexuality of the daughter and passes that to her and husband so there's a lot of non-ownership of your own sexuality in purity culture
0: and usually in these cultures there's not an emphasis on female sexual pleasure right
1: definitely not that's not it that's we don't talk about that that's <laughs> not a thing so there's a lot of like in the 90s this like made a huge rise right so this would have been my formative years um but it made a like huge rise in like evangelical christianity america in general like it was this this weird juxtaposition to like christina aguilera and britney spears being like super pop stars very scantily clad doing a lot of sexual dances at really really young ages and then them announcing that they're well I don't think Christine Aguilar did, but Brittany announcing that she was a virgin and, like, that she's saving herself. And um, Jessica Simpson was another one of those. Mm-hmm. Right. And, like, uh, which, again,
0: I mean, Jessica Simpson was kind of pushed yes. into the sexualization. I, right. I but, think they're like, they are not comfortable women. with. Like, yeah, they're not
1: comfortable with it. They were young. Right. right. I mean, like, Brittany was, like, 14. Right. There's just, there's so much wrong with, like, looking back and seeing all young, these girls were put in really compromising costumes, really compromising.
0: Situations. That they were uncomfortable. Like they were uncomfortable. They, they with, had right? not chosen to dress that way previously and were not comfortable dressing that
1: way. Right. Yes. And I think that there is a level of just recognizing that that in and of itself is an issue, that we tend to sexualize young female bodies without allowing them to have ownership of their bodies. Mm-hmm. And that is problematic. Um, and that is part of purity culture, right? This idea that you do not own your body, your body is a sexual object for someone. And, right. like, and, and that, I mean, I think
0: also that, like, that naiveness yes. is attractive. Yes. Right. That like, goes along with the virginity part.
1: Right. Like, like, you just don't know anything about your body or sex. And, so, I, like, you're like the perfect virgin for, mm-hmm. I don't know, some weird, creepy fantasy. Like, it, it really is this it really does come from this place of men owning female bodies mm-hmm. um and so and that's kind of at the root of it right like it is extremely patriarchal in its origins it's extremely and and it came at the like tell the the rise of purity culture as we know it right now it came right at the end of the tail end of like the aids epidemic and the kind of the rise of, like, fear that our children were going to get STDs and teen pregnancy became a lot more talked about, like, kind of openly. Mm-hmm. Still very shaming, still very damning. But, you know, a lot, there was a lot of comments
0: around I mean, that, that also came after, I mean, the 70s into the 80s were also some times of uh, progression for female rights. hmm And... And this was a huge bet. Like, strong females were leading. Yeah. Right? And so, again, not having a woman who is confident, capable, and competent, no, that's not the arousal. Like, yeah. that's
1: unattractive. Right. And so, yeah, so like we see this kind of rise in rigid, mostly rigid religious structures, but it did happen in non-religious structures. And I think that that is something that we...
0: Well, because America
1: is still largely pure. A Christian nation, right? We are puritanical in our core beliefs. Yes, as a nation. And our core, like, foundations. Right. And so that is what purity culture is defined as. Mm -hmm. Rate culture is basically the same thing, except that it basically says that if you don't land in the rules of purity culture, like if you are not the perfect woman, me virgin, 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 fully leather, clueless, always safe, right? Like, it's that idea of like, if you didn't have a chaperone, right? Like, I almost go back to, I don't know, I've been obsessed about uh, Pride and Prejudice recently, but the idea of like a chaperone, chaperoning sort of like, right? Like all of that was actually part of purity culture, right? Like we're making sure that you, and which again, if we're keeping young women clueless, then people need a chaperone, right? Like keeping you contained because men just can't control themselves. Right? This, that is the rape culture narrative, right? Like you need to control all of the things as a female because men just can't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And which also means if you are raped, it is your fault. And that is the rape culture, right? Rape culture says, if you do not follow the thousand rules and laws, Exactly the right way, and something happens to you mm-hmm. then it is your fault. And if you don't fight with your nails and teeth and fist to get out of it, then you want it mm-hmm. right, which is not how rape works, and rape isn't usually done by strangers. Right. Most rapes happen by someone that we care about, that we love and that we trust.
0: and so. Which is why it went unrecognized for so so long country, right? Like in the 70s, rape was thought to happen like at very low numbers. Like it was extremely rare to experience rape. But that was the idea of stranger jumping out from behind a bush, popping up in your back seat and raping you, which that is much lower in numbers, right? But we didn't have a definition that included married members, boyfriends brothers, friends, marital rape. We didn't have State that rape. part of the definition. And so women were not reporting being raped, even though it was
1: happening to them. Rape. Right. And even though we have those definitions, um, it, we we still underreport. Right. Like, right. Because it, we haven't changed enough of society to make it safe to report, to make that process of reporting yeah. a lot less traumatizing. And one of the female
0: researchers who kind of stumbled upon that, right? She was like, I think at Kent State, I think I talked about this previous episode i mean she's very well known for that and she's like i don't like being well known for that because since the 70s nothing has changed the numbers are still wanted for and until we properly educate men yeah about the fact that these are included in the rape definition now they are included as part of the rape definition she's like i've been to prisons where you know men have been convicted of rape and they're convinced that they did not rape somebody which is why they think the numbers are so high of women falsely accusing men right and she's like i can open up the law book and read that to them and they're like oh right
1: oh Oh. and yeah i did that yeah i mean that's one of the things right like we talk about i i talk about consent a lot Mm -hmm. in my office and it is amazing to me when i start just defining consent Mm -hmm. the amount of pushback i get from anyone Mm -hmm. right like Mm -hmm. well no that can't really be consent i'm like that's the legal definition of consent for signing documents so why Mm -hmm. might it be for signing your body Mm -hmm. right like and so there yeah so these two kind of these two things actually feed off of each other the idea of Mm beauty culture and rape culture kind of feed off of each other and they do create this weird space within arousal templates where power and control become a thing right like i have said before i don't know if i've said it on this podcast but i have said before like I will throw out any marital book that references wifely duties. Mm, Like, mm -hmm. I don't care what kind of good information it is. Like, if it references that this is how your partner experiences love and so you should do this, it's out. Mm -hmm. Bam. Gone. Like, I, no, you should not in any capacity give up your body when you don't want to. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And there may be a lot of negotiation that has to happen. Well, there I
0: mean, will be, be, right? There will be. be a lot of negotiation in those relationships, hopefully prior to marriage. Right. So that you're going into this, like, legally binding contract with informed consent. Right. right. We both know we've done the negotiation. We know what's accepted. We know what the deal breakers are. know, like, but again, that's moving more into a partnership model, than it is the purity culture or the patriarchal model,
1: right? Which is, and both of these assume that women, or females, or people less than right. Because this is the other thing; like, it highly impacts women. It highly impacts people of color. It hi, like, it is anybody who is not the don, mm-hmm. right? If you are not an, I don't, I'm not going to use that word. If you are not a dominant or a an aggressor, then if you're not a predator, you are prey.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. And we want you to be prey enough that the predator wants you, but we don't want you to be so enticing that you're the first one they go after. Right. Which <laughs> I'm just bizarre bizarre to me, like when you start freeing the tail. But like what we are talking about is negotiating sex. Mm. Understanding what safe feels like for you. Understanding what consensual is Mm -hmm. right like if it is not a hell yes and a high five and a high five then we need to talk about where we're at right right? because there are some levels and uh emily nagoski talks about this income as you are right where there's like different types of arousal and we may not be spontaneously aroused like okay you want sex Mm -hmm. i'm in right Mm -hmm. but it could be okay you you're aroused i like you I feel like I'm in a good place like I could get to arousal and I'm consenting and engaging in that right right there is a difference in that than you're asking me for sex I have already said no or I have said some version of I'm tired I have headache I have kids spit up all over me and it but I know Mm -hmm. that I am going to get punished if I do not have sex with you. Right. Whether it's emotionally punished, whether you're going to act like another child that I didn't have to take care of, whether it's going to be physical punishment, whether it's going to be stonewalling mm-hmm. or, right? Like there's sort of or
0: like, I will call it like family punishment. Right. Yeah. If you don't give me sex on this frequency level, don't expect me to help out around the house. Don't expect me to help with my own children. Don't expect me to like right. be pleasant. Right. Like, again... I mean, I've known women who talk about that. Like, well, if I am not sexual with my husband, he just turns into this girl and doesn't do anything. And I'm like,
1: how is that attractive? Right. Like, there's also this other thing that I also want to point out is that sex should not be a reward, right? Like, no, we're not potty training with skills, right? This is not, if you do chores and you show up and parent and, right, like, then you get sex. Mm -hmm. At because the core, sometimes with purity culture,
0: it does tend to make sex transactional. Mm-hmm. I mean, ultimately, sex is because true. that's the only power. I mean, women hold a power sexually, maybe,
1: but it's transactional, right? Right. And, right, that's, I'll be honest, like, I have talked to a lot of people who have this kind of sex. In our office and outside of our office too. and i have yet to meet a single person who says this is mind-blowing sex well <laughs>
0: i've had some that are like it's good sex and i'm like well I, we'll see yeah right and then when we get down to it right they're like oh maybe it's not i mean it's what i know it's and what i like know? yes it's kind of it's helpful for you to believe it's good sex right
1: but there's a whole lot of sex happening that i don't think falls under the category of good sex right i so we saw emily nagoski uh earlier this year and she's quoting someone else who i cannot remember her name at this point and i feel really bad but one of the things emily said in her uh talk was like not being aroused by uncomfortable painful or non-arousing things is does not mean you're broken, right? Mm -hmm. If the sex isn't good, if you're not connected, if you're not in a partnership, like if you don't feel seen, heard, and validated, and you're not aroused, that's actually okay. That's your body doing what it's supposed to do. Right. Right? And so um, she was really talking about like this idea. We've gotten a diagnosis for uh, female arousal disorder. And she's like, I'm not so sure that it's an arousal disorder yeah right that is something biologically wrong yeah this may just be that we have accepted bad sex for a really long time or bad relational circumstances right that like then yes sometimes lead to the lack of arousal right and so right like when we're looking at again the arousal template and these are the relationships that we're engaging in and these are the relationships that Are our options Mm -hmm. because of life circumstances or like where we're at and like it's hard for us to see outside of that Mm -hmm. and it does create some really interesting things in our arousal template right like Mm -hmm. i experienced this a lot where women and some men will come in and like they saved themselves for marriage quote unquote like they were very like sexually pure sexually naive their husbands hold all of the information about sex and really don't want them to like look at it and engage it but then they get shamed for not knowing how to do certain things right Mm -hmm. and so or for not initiating or for not initiating or for not wanting or or not right and there's like you can't it's not like a like a fairy shows up at your wedding at Mm -hmm. least you know and says like and now sex is good right you have years of training as a female in these uh, rigid purity cultures that say, shut it down, shut it down, shut it down, shut it down. And then magically, when that is passed from one male to the next, and that male wants you to be sexual, you should be able to just like ah, turn it on. Right, spine. fine. That only happens with light
0: switches. Automatic, we have lights. Automatically, we do not. Right. Nothing else switches like that, right? It takes a lot. Um, I've also worked with clients, male clients, who have, you know, kept, maybe they're, maybe they have addictions going on, right? So they're, if they're single, right, we're talking about their first sexual experience sober, and that That usually freaks them out, Mm -hmm. right? I don't know that, like, sex fused with alcohol and drugs usually leads to the best of sex, and they're kind of having that awareness, like, oh, this is, like, this is the first time as an adult right I'm being sexual and sober. yeah. Or they've kept it in the fantasy so much that like their wants and needs with sexuality has been kept in the fantasy so much that when it actually comes to doing that with a person, they can't keep an erection, right? Like it's, it's just not functional because it's always been in fantasy. It's always been somewhat elusive to them. Yes. And the way that they could capture that was in fantasy. And then when it comes down to getting these wants and needs in real life Mm -hmm. it doesn't work right and we i mean usually like there's not there shouldn't be shame around that but we have to unpack what's going on there right
1: and i think right like there's so many again we have this belief in our culture that actually i saw a comedian um this weekend and she said you know like when uh sex when men don't orgasm it's the end of the world when women don't orgasm it's just sex Mm. and like we have a very definitive belief whether it is spoken or unspoken that sex ends and sex sex is sex if the male is erect and orgasms Mm -hmm. and when that's a lot of pressure Right. for for men to like perform and perform what like sex should not be performative. Um, but like there's a lot of anxiety that comes around that. And there are so many other cool facets yeah. of sex that we could like engage in. Yeah. If
0: that wasn't the goal. And there is some research being done around male sexuality that talks about there's a really great article. I saved it somewhere. <laughs> um, <laughs> electronically do are making a lot of vague I know. today so talk talking it. about the myths of male sexuality mm-hmm. right and kind of this again i think this goes with purity culture rape culture that men will have sex with any woman anytime anywhere and they were just like that's not true yeah and a lot of men feel shame because they that's not no. right and if that's
1: normal masculinity what's wrong with me right i mean Again, talking about arousal template, it is also about, like, what we are attracted to. What It's not just our fantasies, right? It's the people we're attracted to. It's how we find attraction. And there's so much of that that has this cultural overlay of what is desirable mm-hmm. and what should be desired and how we should be desired and how we should desire that, like, are set up by cultural norms. Right. And a lot of that's set up by the porn industry. Right, mm-hmm. like it feeds a multi-billion-dollar. Well,
0: industry. on the one hand, it's set up by the porn industry. On the other hand, it's set up by
1: religion. Yes, which, like that, right. that's a two that's like a, that's <laughs> a, a continuum. That wow, right? It's a continuum, and very interesting enough. Are heavily tied. Uh huh. Right, the ties yeah. things in religion are also the things that are illicitly higher in porn. Yes. And like we will watch that, right? Like mm-hmm. when we'll- we also did talk about with that question that we got,
0: that can also be part of the underlying fantasy. If you grew up in very conservative, restrictive, sexually cultures with those beliefs,
1: something taboo, something outside of that can be. Yeah, something. Oh, very, that's what I was gonna say. Something outside of monotony. Yes, yes, can feel a little bit like rebellion, or a little bit like I'm ex, like pulling parts of myself that I yeah, don't get to test. We know that like taboo things have a certain attraction, attraction and pull to them, right? And I mean, you've talked about this on your podcast multiple times that anything done in extremes is problematic, oh, right? And that's what we see with rape culture and purity culture, right? Like they're done in extreme. And they're both problematic and really they're the same thing Mm -hmm. right they're the same thing labeled differently right and you know i i tend to believe that when we empower women to know themselves know their bodies know what they want know what consent is own their own sexuality own their own desire allow them to be equal partnerships which means we've done a whole lot of work. We've got to free walk of work. Bring my right. like email or bring any person really to that place. Which is the other podcast we need to do about raising kids. Yeah, raising <laughs> girls. Mm-hmm. Um, but, right, like by empowering women to own their own sexuality, to know what they like, what they don't like, they are allowed to say yes and no more. Mm-hmm. Someone else isn't telling them what they should like, what they should do. Right. Um. You know, going back to the like, wanting your partner to initiate when they have been shutting down sex. Like if we have been allowed to integrate our own sexuality to understand what our arousal template is. And again, like some of this is young and again, and we are not going to fully understand our arousal template. And it develops, right? Right. Sure. If your arousal template develops over your lifetime, right? You will be attracted to very different things in your 60s, should be, if your arousal template has been allowed Uh to grow and cultivate then you are at 14 right and so there's a level of that if if we give people because this is not just hidden from women this is also hidden from men and we give them their the, the supposed arousal template and then we in rape culture and purity culture shame them for all the things that are on the arousal template that society doesn't deem worthy or holy or mm-hmm. whatever um Because I, and let's just, I don't think we've covered this either. Like
0: boys can be shamed for masturbating, right? Like if parents walk in on that or find that or think that that is happening, right? Like, so we have on the one hand, this idea that men always want sex, but if you're masturbating somehow that's wrong of you, right? Like that's a bad thing, right? So Holding those two things can also be complex and lead to a lot of issues. Right,
1: to and right, checking parameters and just realizing like masturbation is part of healthy development. Mm-hmm. And I mean, my opinion is we want them to figure it out before yeah. they're with a partner, right? Um, but also there's a level of like then we create safety parameters around this is what healthy masturbation without porn looks like and these are how things can get fused and we need to talk about your emotional state when you're masturbating and Mm -hmm. like all that because i i mean as much as we talk about like how often we've drawn out like the
0: female genitalia system and how it works like we're doing some sex education for our adult female clients right sometimes i feel like we're also doing some of that with males yeah and just talking about like what it feels like to have um, acceptance around and ownership of like you own your own sexuality like patriarchy doesn't own that purity culture doesn't own that like they don't get to define for you what is and isn't
1: your sexuality right yeah i think that this is one of those things where like some of the work that we are doing is looking at just plotting our arousal template and then deciding like what if that was given to us mm-hmm. and what if that developed organically and I,
0: that's what i was going to say so i've talked to a lot of men who are you know looking at getting recovery from their porn addiction mm-hmm. right i i mean i know i know porn addiction is a, like professional term we talked about i feel like in the last podcast episode, was like, but they're you know struggling there's a lot of uh, uh cults of mm-hmm. with their physical sexuality their bodies sexuality and more right and so we start talking about healthy masturbation and you know you would mention like masturbation without pornography and so I'll bring that up to them and they're like oh, that's not how that works and i'm like well i mean obviously i'm talking from not personal experience here because i don't have a penis right but i think it can work way. Yes. Like I think you've been lied to that this is how it works. That you have to have an image. You have to have something external to you
1: mm-hmm. to feel arrest. right Which is another one of those cultural male myths that we put on people's mm-hmm. around them lists that are not accurate is that like men are just more visually stimulated. Yes. Yes. Like no, that's what we've allowed because we don't allow other kinds of like emotional arousal. Yeah. Or connection or right like we, we just block you and we shame that in females so yeah. a lot of females won't like
0: if they notice something attractive they may be more likely to talk about it in terms of such a nice guy or he did right. this nice thing instead of like i mean i know we're you know younger generations are now more comfortable talking about male eye candy i mean sometimes you know with my kids i'm like i don't know what's healthy or not healthy and so you know i'm like trying to get them to move towards balance i'm not gonna say you can't do that but i'm also
1: like let's just you know he's not objectified people i feel like that's another thing that rape culture and purity culture has tried to like the response to that has also been this extreme of like um well, then women should just objectify men the way that men objectify women and then we'll be equal. And i right? no, no, let's just, let's stop making humans meet.
0: Right. Or there was, um, a research study done about hookup culture and, you know, it was looking at females who kind of adopted that, like, if that's how men do it, then I'm going to engage in hookup culture. And, you know, they followed these women from, or young women in high school into college right and most of them who were engaged in hookup culture had a lot of serious mental health issues come up for them and ended up like i mean they were high athletic performers or high academic performers and you know just kind of like got consumed in anxiety or depression dropped out call it like all of these you know mental health issues that came on board once they were trying to engage
1: in hookup culture right which you know that that research study specifically followed females, but there's also like I see that in males who do yes culture right yes. It's not sustainable. It's not. It it doesn't feel integrated. It doesn't feel like an integrated part of who we are. Now, uh-huh. I am not. Like I don't. I don't care. In terms of like how you are having and choosing to have sex as long as you're within you know your range of safe sane and consensual right. and it's not compulsive and it's not ruining your life right, right. all of that but like i do think that there is a level in which like sometimes we are doing that out of response to what we were given mm-hmm. right like it's a rebellion it's not an integrated part of who we are right and so like I, I I do think that that's something that needs to be addressed when we're talking about arousal template and i do I, I just like these ideas are real, and I will say this to you purity culture and rape culture are terms that when you just throw them out, people will get real fiery, real fast. Mm-hmm. Because there's a defense of the cultural narrative, right? We would rather there be something wrong with your sexuality as an individual than the way that we are teaching sexuality as a culture. Mm -hmm. And I think it is good that we start to realize that culture is made up of individuals and individuals are extremely influenced by the culture. Mm -hmm. And so in order to change kind of the social arousal template piece that we are given, right, if this is in layers We have to start dialoguing around what feels healthier, right? What feels more integrated, what feels more true to ourselves, what allows for autonomy, consent, and ownership in our own sexualities. And what and this is one of the issues that I think is really important. Like in a coupleship, your arousal template does not fuse. Mm -hmm. Right. Your partner has an arousal template and you have an arousal template. And you have to negotiate what works for both of you. And there's a lot of like space there, mm-hmm. but we have to actually know ourselves to be able to know each other, which is something we have not allowed in purity culture. Right, culture. right.
0: Which can then lead to a lot of um, pleasure. It can lead to a lot of like satisfaction in a marriage or in a committed relationship or whatever type of relationship you have, right? That's some of the literature that's going to, be covered in Emily Nagoski's next book
1: which we're all just yes maybe not all of us but Rachel the man girl is very much just waiting very excited for that Um, January 2024 right and I think this is one of those things that if I you know had a one-line plug for understanding your arousal template as I do think it will take you from the quote-unquote good sex to like understanding yourself and understanding what is fantastic mm-hmm. brilliant more integrated more right like there's a lot of connecting space and mm-hmm. an arousal template if you understand it mm-hmm. and i just i love that and
0: i think i mean that's what we're helping clients see a lot is you know if we're coming at our sexual relationships from this these attachment gone wrong let's say then i'm coming with these needs that i that really showed up as young kids, mm-hmm. right? I had these needs that my parents were supposed to fulfill. And if that didn't happen, now I'm coming to the relationship to meet those needs. And, you know, I'm always like, I mean, that's not sure. I guess we have to do that as a way of healing the uh, attachment gone wrong that happened, right? Mm-hmm. But then also, it doesn't lead to the greatest sex, right? Once you recognize that I am valuable, yes. I am powerful, I have needs and wants that are unique to me, I have a lot to share and a lot to offer, and your partner has done that work too, right? Now we're coming together, not in a way of like, please tell me that I'm okay as mm-hmm. But we're coming together and saying, what can we create in this, this moment? moment? Yeah. And... To me, that also, you know, like sometimes I'll talk with clients about novelty and passion and how, again, if if there's not some novelty, passion tends to decline. Mm-hmm. You know, I've talked before about, I think I've talked before about like, you know, it's, it's one of the reasons why uh, vacations, couples tend to have more sex, something novel new, right? And I'll usually say most of these things that our culture offers us in terms of, positioning, lingerie, uh, you know, role playing, whatever they all have like an edge of been there d- mm-hmm. and now it's not novel anymore. Like there's very, really so many colors that lingerie can come you in. You I mean, like a hot lace in so yeah. many ways. And then we're kind of hitting this like, okay. Right. right. But if novelty is part of passion, that it's coming from me developing and being aware of and owning myself and evolving myself there's not an edge to that like as human beings we are always evolving and if i can allow myself to evolve and let that show up in my sexual relationship i've got passion i've got novelty yeah and it's
1: delightful mm yes
0: yes